Bluetooth is killing me. Are you still wearing your beeswax apparatus? Nope. Now it hurts. Water doesn't hurt, that's a good sign. You are listening to the best radio show your best friend has never heard of, which makes me wonder, exactly how good of a friend are you? This is Hell. Alex has this week's question from Al, which you can answer right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The response we like best will win a new book just published by Seven Stories Press, Censored 2020 Through the Looking Glass, the top censored stories and media analysis of 2018-2019 by Mickey Huff and Andy Lee Roth. They've been putting this book out for over 20 years, and it's always full of the news that the news refused to report. We used to feature it on the show back in 1999 and 2000, and I don't think we've done so since then. But it's a fantastic book that comes out every year, and it is the prize for this week's question from hell. Alex, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, the question from Hell, which is uh, broadly co- applicable to our listenership, is uh, what's the name of your venture capital firm? <laughs> what is the name of your venture capital firm? <laughs> Do we have any responses oh, yet? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. Uh, Nick E. says, I'm your daddy. <laughs> Dan K. says, Soylent Greenbacks. Nick A. says, Chumbawamba. <laughs> uh, KHM says, Blood Debts Incorporated, LLC. Uh, Mika D. says, Morgoth's Ring. And Stephen S. says, Synergenes, LLC, where demagogues collect reactionaries. <laughs> it's more of a mission statement than a name of a company, but I'll buy it. Leave your response at our Facebook page and listen throughout today's show to find out if you've won. Again, this week's question from Mel is, what's the name of your venture capital firm? What's the name of your venture capital firm? Leave your answer at facebook.com slash Radio. Listen throughout this week's show to hear all the responses and find out if you've won the new book, Censored 2020 Through the Looking Glass, the top censored stories in media analysis of 2018-2019. So far in this week's show, we went where few have gone during the crisis Trump created at the border, inside the deportation courts with award-winning New York Review of Books writer Madeline Schwartz. We went back to Ferguson to find out exactly what happened, why, and what lies ahead for those who rose up against the police when we spoke with sociologists, critical critical criminologist, ethnographer, feminism and race scholar Andrea S. Boyles, author of You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. We got caught up on the fight for the repeal of all abortion laws when we spoke with feminist scholar Jenny Brown about her new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. You can find all those conversations and all of the three previous hours of this week's show right now at thisishell.com. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. 
This is hell. On today's show, we all know Scandinavia is the home of enlightened environmentalism with green parties and policies dominating their political discussion and debate. Unfortunately, what we know is often far from the truth, as one of the Scandinavian nations, Norway, is exporting climate change-causing fossil fuels like mad cowboys. And after we burst your bubble of Scandinavian enlightenment, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff borrows some dark material, but, you know... Jeff's an honest person. I'm sure he'll give it back after he's done with it. Our guest is historian and mythbuster Henrik Olav Mattison. Henrik Olav Mattison, author of the Dark Mountain article, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy, Equinor, Norway's state-owned oil and gas company, is riding headlong into the world's fossil-fueled sunset whilst it's Cowboy Nation is trotting comfortably along in its trail. That's right, the country that we here in the U.S. think of being progressive, even socialist, open-minded, and doing everything it can to protect the planet from global warming is actually a major player and profiteer in the expansion of fossil fuels and their exploration and exploitation. The Dakota Access Pipeline, that was protested at Sanding Rock? Well, that was Norway's state oil company as a major investor. In fact, you name a huge fossil fuel project anywhere in the world, even at the bottom of the freaking ocean, and more than likely, Equinor has its dirty, greedy hands on it. We'll get past the hype of the greatness of Scandinavia when we talk to Henrik, who is a doctoral research fellow of at of history in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Oslo. You can find Henrik's story at dark-mountain.net. And like I said, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Uh, with contributor Jeff Dorchin, who this week borrows some dark material. We also want to thank some new subscribers to our bonus fifth hour of This Is Hell every week, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell and tell you what we're doing on this week's live stream and podcast that is exclusively for Patreon members. We'll remind you of this evening's This Is Hell office hours, our weekly meet and greet that is more a drink and think that happens downstairs from where I'm sitting right now at this moment in Carrie's Lounge. 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We have listeners to thank for sharing This Is Hell, and we want to show our truly heartfelt appreciation for listeners who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support, selecting one of our many This Is Hell gifts for their support. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell, streaming live at thisishell.com on Mondays and Wednesdays for one hour at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and two hours on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. again Chicago time. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I am about to ask were written while I was high. This is hell. Last week, we spoke with political science scholar Corey Robin about his new book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Corey said something that other guests have said in the past, but for whatever reason, the way Corey mentioned it really struck me. And what struck me was Corey talking at the end of our discussion about futility and despair. And if you really want change, if you truly desire the transformative politics that can make living a whole hell of a lot better than it is now, one cannot fall for the temptation of futility and despair. But more than that, Corey mentioned futility and despair as political strategies by the right, by conservatives, by Republicans. Conservatives preach the pointlessness and uselessness of challenging the system. It's too big. It's too powerful. It's too complicated. It's too hard to challenge besides with the right and their beloved neoliberalism. It's all about the individual. And as an individual, there's not... There's no way you are going to make big transformative change, the kind of change that you want. That can only be done through the power of politics. That means collective action and working together as a community. All things, there are all things that 
Republicans deride. In fact, Republicans have engaged in massive transformative change, even over just the last few years of the Trump administration. Conservatism has become more reactionary and moved farther to the far right. And none of that was done with individual action, but working together collectively, the far right mounted a concerted decades-long campaign to drag the U.S. toward fascism. And it worked. The futility they sold their right-wing constituents was that it was useless and pointless to try and work together with women, with people of color, with the poor, with those who want easy and affordable access to health care and education, that you will never find common ground with those kooks and their un-American ideas about equality. So it's time we leave them behind and move toward the fascist horizon we've always wanted and the left has always despised. The right doesn't want aspirations for a better life. They staunchly defend the status quo of white privilege and supremacy because that benefits them no matter how much they deny that it does. The right preaches despair and hopelessness, so is it any wonder the Obama campaign phrase of hope and change offended them so much. Whatever our wishes are, whatever our desires, conservatism always tells us what we want is impractical, not pragmatic, and clearly and obviously out of our reach. If we point out a problem, the right demands we also offer the solution when we mention the problem. But that's the thing about problems. If you had the solutions then they wouldn't be problems. The right's thinking is eliminate the problem by never mentioning it as a problem and simply accept that whatever new hell they have on offer, the ones they've created with their back room behind closed doors, elitist collectivism that only benefits the 1% of the 1% as the new normal. The distress, anguish, and pain they impose with their despair and futility is the weaponization of their right-wing reactionary conservative thinking. Their goal is to put in a permanent state of disillusionment about any agency citizens have over their government, any control we have over our own lives. Conservatives want us to accept this hell as the natural state of being that is unmovable and cannot be changed, when in reality, through the politics the right so loathes, through the ability and power people have to actually make change by working together, that's when the right shakes with what we think is hate as their backlash becomes vile and insulting. But I'm starting to think the right is not about hate. How can any person sustain hate for any period of time? I've seen far-right people show their deep love for family and friends, and I've seen the power of that love overcome differences, leading to even people on the farthest of the far right working together to help out those in need in times of natural disasters. So I'm starting to think that the power of love cannot be overcome by the power of hate, which means the right and their weaponization of futility and despair as a political strategy isn't driven by hate. It's driven, fueled by something else. And I'm starting to think that something else is fear. The right is the political movement of fear. Fear of change, fear of anything different, fear of everything that isn't exactly like them and doesn't perfectly live up to their predisposed expectations, never creating any uncertainty or amb ambiguity in their lives. So everything is clearly understood as us or them, right or wrong, black or white. Meanwhile, their political rivals at the other end of the spectrum or whatever our political meter is these days is the political uh, politics of expectations and how can they be met, of anticipating a better future, of ambitious wishes whose aim is utopian pipe dreams that the right insists are impossibly out of reach, until suddenly we have the 40-hour work week, Social Security, and all the social programs that conservatives insisted were too expensive and bureaucratically cumbersome to actually work. While the left offers 
offers the possibilities of a daydream nation that only exists within the pages of the most fantastic science fiction novel. All the right has for us is the despair and futility of their ongoing American nightmare of inequality, disparity, and a belief that patriarchy, misogyny, and racism are natural and can never be overcome, and any attempt at doing so is pointless. The left can't fall for conservative pessimism and need to confront it with radical joy and hope, with a cheerful, optimistic look at the future, instead of continuing the right's normalization of anguish and pain that cannot be challenged. Look, I know this is hell, but do not give up. Do not abandon hope, because without it, the left is just as miserable as the cowardly right, the cowers in fear and despair, just as their masters have told them to. I get it. It's easy to give up in the face of all the media that tells us there is no hope. But when we do, when we see the world the way the right wants us to see it, as full of utility and despair, when the left loses hope and wallows in the depression of pointlessness, that's when this really is hell. Coming up, Norway. Yes, Norway is exporting climate change to around the world. We'll tell you about what we're doing on Patreon tomorrow, no, on Friday during our fifth hour of This Is Hell, only for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We have some people to thank for supporting This Is Hell, others for sharing this show or interviews or Jeff's moment of truth. And we also want to show our appreciation to those who have shown their support for the show over the last week by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see our This Is Hell trucker cap, coffee mug, t-shirt, tote bag, and other stuff. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. Here in the U.S., when we think of Norway, we think of beautiful fjords, untouched by human activity, still in their natural state of serenity, a nation populated by people who are about all things green with a government that is enlightened when it comes to the environment and climate change. Prepare for all that to change as we discover that Norway is a huge exporter of fossil fuels and an even bigger exporter of climate change. Here to explain is Henrik Olav Mattison. He is a historian and mythbuster and author of the Dark Mountain article, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy, which you can find at dark-mountain.net. Welcome to This is Hell, Henrik. Thank you so much, Chuck. Hen- Henrik is a doctoral research fellow of history in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Oslo. Henrik is working on a dissertation that sounds fascinating. It's about the creation of a Norwegian American transatlantic public sphere in the 19th century as a consequence of the large scale migration from Norway to the U.S. You can follow Henrik on Twitter at Henrik Madison. That's H-E-N-R-I-K-M-A-T-H-I-E-S-E-N. You write Equinor is the publicly owned Norwegian company firmly intent upon wreaking havoc on the world for as long as possible off our own shores, that is Norway's shores, and far beyond. How much pushback is Equinor experiencing from Norway's citizens who may be those who are opposed to fossil fuel consumption and climate change? Uh, yeah, well, um, if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have said not much, but uh, uh, with, the, with the school strikers and with Greta Thunberg, that has really galvanized uh, public opinion here, I, I think. But for, unfortunately, uh, there's a political lag and uh, it's really difficult to see that changing in the near future. But uh, as you say, we just have to have hope, right? Exactly. Uh, you say off our shown shores again, it's Norway's shores, and far beyond. How much of a global 
impact is Norway having on fossil fuel consumption and climate change? Because I think often people think of the impact that they may have, not necessarily staying within their borders, because we know that the climate goes past borders, but the responsibility is held within borders. So how much, uh, how much of a global impact is Norway, is Equinor having on fossil fuel consumption and climate change? Uh, yeah, well, it's very difficult to know because Equinor controls information of its international affairs. So, um, uh, but what we do know is that Equinor, as an international company, operates in some 30 countries, uh, including in Brazil, where uh, the leader of the Equinor operation there has just um, uh, praised Bolsonaro for his treatment of the Amazon. So, I mean, <laughs> they're living. Uh, in quite a, uh, they have quite a strange uh, worldview, uh, but uh, that keeps them going, of course. Right. A pra- so praising Bolsonaro for what is happening in the Amazon. Yet I'm listening to news radio on the way home from seeing my nieces play hundreds of miles away, and I listen to the radio, and they start talking about how Equinor has now figured out a way in which they can have wind power that is not only sustainable, but does not need to be subsidized. It is profitable without subsidies, unlike the fossil fuel industry. And they're going to be putting in these huge uh, wind turbines off uh, 100 miles off the shore, I believe, of England on this uh, plateau where they're going to be having these uh, uh, wind turbines that have propellers that are 100 feet long. It's going to be a gigantic, gigantic formation. And they're all talking about how this is Equinor's push for green and alternative and clean energy that doesn't need subsidies unlike fossil fuels. So how much is Equinor cleaning up the wreck because of the pressure that has happened over the last couple of years? Yeah, um, I don't know so much specifically about the Scottish operation, but uh, at home here at least, it's very important for them to portray themselves as um, as green and um, hence the name change from state oil, state oil to Equinor last last year, it's meant to, well, no one knows exactly what they meant by that name, but uh, I think they wanted to signify that some equity with, you know, social equity, environmental equity. But but the point is that, uh, so here in Norway, um, they're electrifying some of their oil platforms on the offshore platforms, and that is to get our... Um, emissions down, of course, but, you know, it's uh, talking about sticking up plaster on a gangrene and sore, right? I mean, uh, uh, it's not in the production of the oil where um, the emissions occur, it's with the burning of it. So, but still, that's a way for them to, you know, position themselves as, look, we're going into wind and uh, and green energy, but their main activity, of course, is, is gas and that's gas and oil. And that's what they're pushing now in, into Europe, uh, because our oil fields might reach their um, high potential. And so they're trying to secure long lasting deals for gas instead. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Equinor, though, is not a name that we know here in the U.S. We wouldn't have known the old Norwegian state oil company's name either. The companies that we are, uh, you often hear environmentalists and climate change activists protesting are the ones that you see at the gas station, the ones where you see a marathon sign or a British petroleum sign, BP sign or a Gulf oil sign or a, uh, whatever, the Chevron sign. Those are the oil companies that we are aware of. 
I don't think here in the United States many people are aware of Equinor, despite its many activities here in the U.S., and you point them out in the article. How much does Equinor keep a really low profile in order to avoid not only criticism of Equinor itself, but criticism of Norway as as Equinor is their state oil company? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, uh, on, on on the one hand, they they run these major adverts out in Europe for how uh, for how green they are. So they want to be positioned as a visible actor. But um, at the same time, uh, we know where at least here in Norway, we know very little about what they're actually doing abroad because. Um, the the access to information is so so sparse so we mostly have what they tell us <laughs> to go on and they they're not uh, they're not um, uh, they don't have to tell the government what it's doing so so um, uh, yeah and uh, you even point out that you cite that the the wilderness uh, society of South Australia stating that Norwegians would be justifiably horrified to find out that their state-owned oil company is carrying on like cowboys in Australia and this is involving the great Austa- Australian bite and I'll tell you and we'll talk about that in a second but I want to just follow up on what you were just saying so how aware are Norwegians of the actions of their publicly financed national oil company isn't there if it's publicly financed isn't there some sort of democratic process in which the state <laughs> oil pro- uh, program works? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderfully weird situation, yeah, This all of this, really. Um, I mean, so we have this state company. I mean, it's, it's partly privatized now since 2001, but still the state owns some 70% of the shares. And... Uh, <laughs> and even then, it uh, it spends millions of dollars every year on propaganda um, in in um, Norwegian society to tell us all how well it's doing. <laughs> and uh, um, historians here uh, talk about an oil industrial complex being in place. So you have a well, let's say a revolving doors between the bureaucracy, politicians, and the oil industry. Uh, which means that um, the oil industry often gets to set the frame of discourse here for, and, and of course they're interested in portraying themselves as benign and uh, that the, what they're doing benefits the world. Um, and they tell all these ludicrous stories about how Norwegian oil and gas will save the climate, right? Um, so, um, but money talks in a way and, uh, no, no one spends more money on uh, adverts and commercials in Norway than Equinor, uh, which means that they're actually quite successful in uh, in um, in framing the discussion and and the way we all think about it. Is it rare then in in Norway to see any criticism of Equinor in the media, whether that's print, TV, radio, online? Is that a rare event to see criticism of Equinor? Uh, no, you, you do get criticism, um, especially from the environmental movements, and, and of course uh, um, there is pushback. But uh, um, it it has such a big ideological influence here, so uh, you, you have a hard time arguing against it. And one of the narratives the oil industry pushes is that our welfare is due to 
uh, our oil industry. And uh, of course, that's not, I mean, it's partly true, of course, but uh, I mean, Sweden doesn't have that kind of an industry and Sweden is doing all right. So, um, but uh, that is a very successful narrative to push because uh, it, um, I mean, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like, you know, the slave owners in, in the antebellum US, and they said like, <laughs> uh, how dependent they are on, uh, on the US were on slaves and the cotton industry, and you know, what would you be without us to the northern states? Uh, it's the same argument. Uh, it, it's successful enough to work and to get a lot of people on board thinking that it's okay. But you know, it, it's problematic. What, well, if, uh, all right, I guess the first question would be, do you, so you believe that Norway can survive without Equinor. What would happen to Norway without Equinor, in your opinion? Um, well, I, I think, uh, of, of course, there would be a major impact. But, um, but one thing is what would happen to Norway without Equinor, because now it's a multinational company or an international company. So uh, most of our revenue is still uh, from Norwegian offshore territory, from like extraction, uh, not from what the company is doing. And this is a bit of a complicated structure, but uh, I think uh, getting rid of Equinor, I mean, there's a there's some uh, quite a few thousand um, uh, jobs, of course, which would need to be uh, uh, done something about, but but again, uh, a lot of the pushback from the environmental movements is all about like, look, we have this big company. Uh, if we really want to tackle climate change, uh, why not you know use our state-owned company to push for renewable energy? Why not you know transfer all those jobs into really pushing for renewable energy instead of continuing? to uh, extract gas and oil until the end of the century. So at least that's the argument you could make. We have the opportunity to do that. Uh, so I'm not sure if we would have that major crash if we just, instead of like <laughs> getting rid of the industry, just transformed it because we can. <laughs> it's under democratic control theoretically. The problem, of course, is that because of all these neoliberalist attitudes towards companies like Equinor and, and others, you know, and because it's lucrative, politicians, you know, it's it's a hands-off approach, and uh, that's unfortunate. But you, we might get some more pushback from, from the Greens if they, if, they, um, uh, if they grow over the next years, of course, because they want to do this. You write that Equinor is owned by all Norwegians. This is our nation's company, our common property, our treasure chest. We save up all our fossil fuel profits in what we call the Government Pension Fund Global, colloquially known as the uh, oil fund, herded along by the uh, National Bank. Our trillion-dollar fund invests in dirty industries across the globe, oil, gas, oil sands, you name it. We have stakes in it. To what extent do you think Norwegians and their environmental values have been bought off by Equinor? Oh, um, yeah, I don't think it's, uh, I don't want to blame Equinor alone. I think um, much of the problem here is when, uh, when international uh, climate action was, um, was uh, 
established in the end of the 1980s, um, uh, this this quota system uh, would actually, and politicians re- realize it would benefit Norway to push for that kind of thing because uh, somehow that allowed our industry to expand because we could afford to buy the quotas and still push hard for it in terms of international uh, progress. But um, as you know, the system hasn't worked very well. I think um, the American journalist David Wallace Wells says something like, you know, more than half of the CO2 in the atmosphere has been released since the premiere of Seinfeld. So, I mean, something's gone wrong here, but, but it has made uh, Norway from the outside look like a very progressive agent on the international scene. But what we're actually doing <laughs> is exactly the opposite. We're, we're pumping up more and more oil. And uh, since the uh, since 1990s, we've also expanded to pump up other uh, nations' oil, like in Brazil or in, in the US. So, uh, but yeah, but it's created this impression that um, Norway is a progressive actor. and. To a certain degree, in terms of international politics, yes, but uh, uh, we should all do our bit as well, <laughs> uh, don't you think? Yeah, and I'm, except I'm just going to blame Seinfeld. We are speaking <laughs> with historian and mythbuster Henrik Olav Mattison and the author of the Dark Mountain article, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. You can find Henrik's story at dark-mountain.net, and you can follow Henrik on Twitter at Henrik. Mattison, we have a direct link to that Twitter account at our website, thisishell.com. You write, even when we divest, even when Equinor divests, it is to protect our oil money. The decision in March 2019 to sell our shares in companies exclusively dedicated to oil and gas exploration and extraction was made, according to the Minister of Finance, to spread the risk of our investments. Isn't any divestment from fossil fuel a good divestment? What did you see that was a little bit hinky, that was weird, that was odd about this divestment and how it doesn't necessarily embrace a fight against climate change? Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, of course it's good. I mean, every, every small step is good in the same uh, way as, you know, uh, trying to replace coal with less CO2 intensive uh, fuel is good, but it still doesn't get you very far. And and the problem with, with that uh, uh, decision, which was very well praised in international media, is that this wasn't about like tackling climate change. This was about uh, <laughs> securing Norwegian oil money from uh, a value loss uh, if in the future, um, uh, the oil and gas industry globally would be devalued. <laughs> uh, and and the absurdity of it really comes home when you think about, so we have this trillion dollar fund. And yes, we do have an ethics council, which, you know, tries to take the worst heat of, of things. But, you know, we have trillion dollars, we could use some of that money, if not all of it, not just like divesting from the worst uh, types of uh, activities, but why not use it to actually fund some progressive things like renewable energy and like actively use that fund uh, while we have it? 
it, it's absurd that we should only backtrack. <laughs> Uh, that's my opinion, at least. But uh, that's a lot of. That's also quite a few others' opinion, uh, including the school strikers. So, yeah. But, you know, when we uh, here in the U.S., when we think about possible reforms, we think of stuff like nationalism and how that will nationalizing an industry and how that would uh, save that industry, how that would make that industry uh, more um, ethical. You were just talking about the uh, ethics council that they have in Norway, and that would be, again, a reform here in the United States, even though we do have some ethics councils within our government, you know, a, a more a powerful ethics council. Yet when Equinor goes to the ethics council, the Eth- ethics council seems to and does in your reporting side with Equinor. Is the ethics council in Norway an efficient and effective uh, institution or organization except when it comes to Equinor, suddenly it turns a blind eye. <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah. So, I mean, it's effective in in what it's it thinks it needs to do, uh, I guess. But uh, it could certainly be made um, um, into a much more progressive instrument because, uh, again, like everything here is the state in various disguises right so so equinor is the, is state owned and uh, of course the oil fund is state owned and it's it's meant to be controlled by the ministry of finance even though the minister herself likes to take a hands off approach to whatever the oil fund wants to do but like you could very easily imagine that a minister of finance and even the prime minister could just you know tell the ethics council that you know we sh- should do much better because you know we can <laughs> but time and again politicians um, choose not to use all the democratic instruments which we have in our toolbox and that's the uh, frustration i guess i wanted to convey when uh, writing up my article does norway's government's stance on climate change in any way either complement or contradict their position, uh, the position of Equinor? How much does the Equinor position line up with the environmental policy position of the Norway government, at least the one that they try to uh, signal to people rather than the one that they seem to tolerate with Equinor? Uh, yeah, well, um, there's a lot of parroting going on. Uh, so the oil industry wouldn't uh, use the exact same arguments as politicians and vice versa, and including this this government. Um, so um, there's two arguments that's being pushed, and that's that Norway has the cleanest oil and gas production in the world. So uh, we're helping the climate by replacing other nations, uh, much more uh, dirty oil and gas, whatever that means. And and they also have an idea that uh, we should, uh, Norway should have an impact abroad. So they're pushing for selling Norwegian gas to Europe uh, and to use gas as a bridge to come to net zero internationally. And I mean, uh, theoretically, that does make sense, but there's been so many studies now, uh, the uh, past five years or so, which have shown that, you know, actually gas is no better than coal. I mean, less CO2, but more methane. So uh, it, it it's 
basically the same. Uh, so gas is a bridge to nowhere, <laughs> essentially, which one of the uh, scientists called it. Uh, but that's what's being pushed. Uh, and that's what's being pushed by Equinor, and that's what's being pushed by the government. So, um, yeah, it's a one-to-one -one relationship, I guess. As I was mentioning earlier, uh, Henrik is a doctoral research fellow of history in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Oslo and is working on a dissertation about the creation of a Norwegian-American transatlantic public sphere in the 19th century as a consequence of the large-scale migration from Norway to the U.S. And that's where I want to take this conversation next. You write, the Wild West is nothing but Norway's own backyard. I'm not simply referring to the fact that the country emptied itself of more than 750,000 of its inhabitants as Norwegian emigrants sought cheap soil to farm in the American Midwest, seeking land on the frontier and thereby contributing to the displacement of the indigenous populations there. Norwegians quickly learned how to grow cash crops and become capitalist farmers for an emerging U.S. grain export market. Why, in your opinion, does this seem to be a Norwegian trait, or at least it was in the past several centuries? Why do you think this cowboy mentality is so embraced by Norwegians. Um, yeah, uh, wherever there's a buck to be made, right? <laughs> um, uh, so I actually wanted to put in a, a piece in my article, which I end up not using, but uh, for a long time, um, there was a planned project to chop off uh, pristine glacier ice uh, in northern Norway to... Um, to sell to lucrative, uh, uh, luxurious bars around the world, and they would chop chop off the ice uh, uh, and um, transport it down in helicopter, and then jet it all the way around the world. And you know that's while our glaciers uh, our glaciers are melting. And so I mean that was in the end it was cancelled, but it says something about our willingness to uh, make a buck out of even climate change, right? So. Um, but yeah, uh, but when it comes to the U.S., I mean, uh, I wanted to just emphasize that uh, we've had a historic relationship with colonialism in on the Western frontier, uh, and it's it's still ongoing. And um, uh, w there is an argument to be made that we have a historical responsibility here because, I mean, so much of our population departed for America in, in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and, you know, almost, I think, 5 million people in the U.S. today uh, claim Norwegian heritage, and that's the same size as the population of today's Norway. So it's it's a huge population, and... Um, um, yeah, sorry, does that answer your question? <laughs> no, but at one point you write how, in a way, the last uh, uh, one was a homecoming. In, in North Dakota in 2009, 30.8% of the state's population reported themselves to be of Norwegian ancestry. The original Bakkens in North Dakota were the Norwegian immigrant farmers Otto and Mary Bakken. This is the Bakken oil field in North Dakota that is now producing so much of uh, so much oil, one of the largest producers in the area. Does Equinor then get any sort of free pass environmentally from locals in the Dakotas? 
when it comes to doing whatever they want because they when it when it comes to fossil fuel exploit exploration exploitation uh, because they are in fact a Norwegian company and the people who are living there are the descendants of Norwegians and therefore they have some sort of affinity for that company. That's a great question, and I actually I I don't know how Equinor is seen in in Bakken in North Dakota, but. Um, but certainly in Norway, I mean, if I, if I told most people about Equinor being operative in Bakken, they would they wouldn't know. Uh, and even even like so, I, in my article, I tried to uh, lift up the great work that our Sami journalists, uh, our indigenous population, has has been doing to to expose uh, the Norwegian investments in the pipeline from Bakken, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. But like even for all their great work, even uh, these journalists, they didn't couple, uh, they didn't realize that Equinor was in Bakken. They never wrote about it. So, I mean, um, it's um, uh, it's almost like they, they, they just, you know, uh, move around quietly in the world. Uh, at least it, it doesn't enter Norwegian uh, public discussion, even <laughs> if we have this situation where we are funding so much of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is absurd, right? Because Equinor, like the oil fund, is a state institution. So, I mean, the Norwegian presence in total here is is uh, is quite astonishing. But um, um, but yeah, but I don't know how, how they're treated in North Dakota. I, I know that North Dakota has welcomed the fracking boom, even though uh, socially there's been a, quite a few problems, I understand. Right. But I've, you, I've heard the, right. I've heard the same thing, that there's been an explosion in crime and that kind of thing. You know, and, and just on this uh, point about, uh, as, you, as you write, it was the indigenous Sami division of Norway's National Broadcasting Corporation, NRK Sami, which took the trouble of digging up and exposing the heavy Norwegian investments in the Dakota Access Pipeline. But one would argue then, aren't the Sami vulnerable to the same economic deprivations as white Norwegians if Equinor were not as financially successful as it is? Why do you think that the indigenous people here in the United States and as well as the indigenous people in Norway are uh, willing to be opposed to Equinor without concerns about how they might be economically deprived? Yet it seems like white Norwegians are very concerned about this. Um. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I got your question, so you'll have to correct me. But, but I, um, I, I guess that uh, at least our Sami population has been uh, trying to, and uh, this is a transnational movement, I think, and it's trying to connect to other indigenous populations around the world because more and more these various indigenous populations realize that they're in the same boat. Um, I mean. Uh, the Samis in Norway are are treated well, I, I believe, in 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 the most part. Uh, even though there there is friction between the state and and the indigenous population here, but uh, but I think uh, the the project that these journalists were doing were, was to highlight that you know um, the <laughs> the transatlantic connection here is quite 
it's it's quite real and it's uh, it's it's about solidarity i think but but even then even if the samis here pushed for uh, a greater consciousness of what norwegians are doing abroad i mean you still have the minister for finance dressing up like pocahontas right and it's it's a total a total um, different reality in which most norwegian white people live in i guess so did I answer your question? I'm yeah, sorry. yeah, no, 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 you did. That was a very good answer. Uh, Henrik, I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with historian and mythbuster Henrik Olav Mattison. He is author of the Dark Mountain article, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. You can find Henrik's story at dark-mountain.net. As I was saying, Henrik is a doctoral research fellow of history in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Oslo. Henrik is working on a dissertation about the creation of a Norwegian-American transatlantic public sphere in the 19th century as a consequence of the large-scale migration from Norway to the U.S., which sounds fascinating, Henrik. And when you finish that dissertation, please get in contact with us, because I'm sure it'll lead to a book that I will definitely want to read. You can follow Henrik on Twitter at Henrik Madison, and we have a correct spelling of his name at our website, thisishell.com, and you can just go there to follow him on Twitter. One last question for you, Henrik, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write about what you were just mentioning. Uh, Department of Finance in Norway had thrown its annual autumn party celebrating the completion of the state budget for the upcoming year was to be a dress-up party, the theme of which was fitting superheroes, fantasy, and would you have guessed it, the Wild West. Siv Jensen had evidently been inspired by the recent Standing Rock controversy and the feeble protest in our Norwegian parliament opting for the Pocahontas look. Then our Minister of Finance, in full red face, posed for the camera and updated her Instagram account. The president of the Sami parliament, Ali Kesketalo, pointed out the obvious bad taste of dressing up as fantasy Indians when distraught indigenous people from North America had just left the country to return protesting at Standing Rock after confronting the government of Norway and Equinor's participation in the pipeline, stating, I find it reprehensible that she who is the head of the pension fund global dresses up as if she is making fun of those who actually suffer from the money we earn. Siv Jensen's deputy, Petter Kvingvet, spoke on behalf of the minister and urged Keskitalo to have a sense of humor and to stop being so sensitive. Does Equinor then, more than anything, reveal Norway's racism? Ooh, yeah, I, I, I think it, it does. It's usually quite subtle, but this is a very, I mean, it, it might be... Um, you might think that this was just stupid, right? Stupidity, but um, there there are some um, some. Um, <laughs> well, this is this is certainly a question from hell, but but yeah, uh, to 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 answer uh, in brief, I I think it does. Um, it, it's quite concerning to to witness uh, people in power telling indigenous peoples to stop being so sensitive. Um, so I just have to answer, yes, it does. Henrik, I, I really appreciate you. And that just concerns me because we know of the rising racism and the horrible, violent attacks that have happened in Norway uh, based on racism. So it's just a shame that it seems like racism is institutionalized in Norway and partly through Equinor and their energy policies. And it's just it's a very depressing state of affairs. But it's far better to know the truth than to think that uh, what Norway is are just these commercials we 
see here in the States for cruiser, cruise ships going down fjords. So, Henrik, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Thank you so much for the information that you've shared with us, and I look forward to your future writing. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great being here, and uh, I, I do love your show, so thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Henrik. I appreciate that. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's the name of your venture capital firm? Alex? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. Let me... <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to get Jeff on the line at the same time. Uh, yes. Yeah, so what is the name of your venture capital firm? Mark A says, Cohen Giuliani, LLC. <laughs> Mike M says, Lee Capital. Let me, hold on. Let me hold a mirror to that. It says, this is Hell Capital backwards. Oh, don't, don't get us very involved. Very nice. Uh, Marco G says, Terminal Profit Venture Associate. <laughs> uh, Jacob J says, the Jacobson Foundation. Philanthropy is the highest stage of venture capitalism. <laughs> Uh, Greg M says, Biden and Sons, Ukrainian Mining and Auto Detailing LLC. <laughs> Wait a second, who wrote that? Uh, that was Greg M. Hey. Uh, David S says, Dedham, Fium, and Fleesum. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, get, get ready for some of those. Wow. Uh, Garrett L says, Acadia Ventures. Jeremy T says, Your Classism's, your, your classism's Bitch Without My Money, Incorporated. <laughs> uh, Wally R says, The Democratic Leadership Council. <laughs> Jessica B says, Big Dumb Ideas Limited, amassing useless excess near you. Jeffy, D, uh, our own Jeffy D says, Fraud Guaranteed. Uh, Braden S says, Bob. What's the name of your venture capital company? Uh, Benjamin C says, Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Oh, oh my God. See, there's going to be a ton of these old Three Stooges can, puns, I can, man. I can report him to Facebook <laughs> in a second. Um, William C says, Corpse Trader Finance and Fine Dining. <laughs> and uh, I'll end on this one for now. Aaron B says, Hot Pockets. Could you repeat the Biden one again? That was really good from Greg M. Uh, yeah, let me scroll down. Greg M says, Biden and Sons, Ukrainian Mining and Auto Detailing, <laughs> Ukrainian, LLC. Ukrainian Mining and Auto Detailing. I really like that one. All right. And I'm a sucker for anything that has auto detailing in it, as I was surrounded by that as a youth. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page and listen throughout today's show to find out if you've won. Again, this week's question from hell is, what's the name of your venture capital firm? Leave your answer at facebook.com slash thisishellradio and listen throughout this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won the new book, Censored 2020 Through the Looking Glass, the top censored stories and media analysis of 2018-2019. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell during a moment of truth in a few minutes. Jeff borrows some dark material, and I'm starting to wonder if that dark material is cosmological or comical. Knowing Jeff... Probably a little of both. On the bonus hour of This Is Hell This Week, during our Patreon podcast, which we stream live exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell now on Fridays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast at Patreon shortly after, we are going to share an interview we did way back in 2002 on immigration. That's right. We are so far ahead of the curve that we are talking about the challenges facing migrants when there were already significant problems, although they had not yet become a political controversy because, well, pretty much nobody gave a damn about migrants back then. So we'll play our interview with Rene Pletvit who spoke to us live from Brussels and told us about his organization December 18 and the upcoming International Migrants' Rights Day, for which the group is named. December 18th is International Migrants' Day. If you want to hear what migrants' concerns already were way back in 2002, you got to subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. In fact, Renee was on as the world was celebrating only its third International Migrant Migrants' Day, an event that had been only around for a couple of years, started up in uh, 
in 2000, right as migrants issues started as becoming, well, an issue. We'll also have a new monologue from me about, oh my God. And this is going to be tricky. I'm pretty sure if I was born black, I'd, I'd be dead already. Oh, no. Ugh, pretty <laughs> sure I'd be dead. I'm pretty certain of it. And looking at my life, the only thing that has kept me alive, sadly, is white privilege. And I believe we'll uh, yet again be joined on the podcast by Alex's three-year-old. Is Lee going to be here on Friday or not? Uh, nah, and he's two. Uh, is, but, is he two? Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, thankfully, uh, child-free. Well, he's acting far older than he looks. He's acting like a 16-year-old already. But the only way you can learn the very beginnings of the migrants' rights movement, hear me skate on the thinnest of ice by fantasizing about what my short life would have been like if I was black, and listen to the dulcet tones of Alex's kid, but apparently not. It's not going to make it here this week. Is a subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks for joining us. As new subscribers, this week goes out to Donna, Todd, and Haley, to show our thanks for becoming new subscribers, they'll each get This Is Hell's advertising stickers so they can subvert public advertising and specials on gifts from our site at thisishell.com just for signing up. Thanks to everyone who shared This Is Hell this week on social media as well, including all the people who shared our interview with Corey Robin on his new book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, including Micah, Jeffrey, Jeff with one F, Curly, Gorilla Gramophonics, George, Simon, Richard, Johnny, Nick, Dan, and Jake. Also, thanks to everyone who shared our interview with Andrea by Estero on whether waters a right or a commodity, including John, Doug, Maria, Rob, Michael, Astrid, Van, and Julie. And finally, thanks to Ross for sharing as well as uh, thanks to everybody else too who didn't share just on Facebook but on other social medias. I just don't have time to name all those people. Coming up on a moment of truth in a few minutes, Jeff borrows some dark material. We want to thank some listeners for supporting this as hell. We want to invite you uh, all to a really very big and important This Is Hell office hours this evening. It's happening tonight at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. And uh, we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell next week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this show. Alex Jerry. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do that. The symposium. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I found the Joker movie to be exhaustingly gorgeous. It did not end with a shrug, as one NPR critic had it. It ended with, well, I won't spoil it. Yes, I, I will, but not right away. All I know is, see it with someone who enjoys movie-making history from every era, and also someone with a lot of bottled-up anger. Could be the same person. I want to avoid spoilers, so it's a good thing this isn't a review of the movie, because I am determined to be extremely vague and yet somehow convey something worthwhile. In other words, my usual song and dance. I'll be inching my meaning forward tentatively so as not to spook you out from the darkness under a closed door. You might see what I mean, or you might only see my fingertips peeking out. Just don't step on my fingers. They are not bald-headed mice, I can assure you of that. The story is about a man who cares too much about his terrible job. He has very few people who support him, and the government cuts the money to pay the one therapist he's managed to have arranged for him. Also, his meds. They cut funding for his meds. I blame the lack of meds. Also, he smokes a lot of cigarettes. 
Meanwhile, Gotham City has turned into New York in the late or in the 1970s. They even have a garbage strike, just like in the good old days. Instead of super predators, they have super rats. I thought about calling this piece The Joker. Then I thought about calling it Les Miserables. Even The Decembrists, just to keep the musical slash revolutionary theme going. The movie has a great soundtrack, and it makes you want to kill smug, self-serving, philanthropic, rich people. How can you go wrong? The movie channeled my feelings. First I felt sad, then depressed, then nervous, then angry, then thirsty, then a little bit in the mood for popcorn, but aware I would regret eating any, having those kernel skins floating around my epiglottis. Then impressed with the aesthetic choices, then exhilarated by the... Well, I can't tell you that part. A viewer can guide those feelings along semiotic signposts that lead both to a wish for catharsis and a realization that the catharsis, if it comes, and it will, will be achieved for the wrong reasons, or for bad reasons, or by bad people, or misguided people, or people acting on bad impulses and influences. Then again, aren't you the one who guided them there, Mr. Director? Oh, now I'm talking to the director, huh? Pretty duplicitous. But as I said, this is not a review of the movie. It's a review of the Chapo Trap House review of the movie. First, I should say that it's pretty pathetic that the Chapo episode I'm most fulfilled by is the one where they review a comic book movie. But that's fine, as their own comments during the episode would indicate. Let me just hit their major points. One, Joker is a masterpiece. It's disturbing, poignantly funny, Twisted, beautifully shot, masterfully acted, superbly edited and scored, and just downright well-made. Two, it's not merely an origin story of the Joker, the Batman villain from the DC comic book universe. It's also the origin story of the Joker as cultural totem representing the white trash menace, the purveyor of social chaos for its own sake, a cultural phenomenon forced into existence through the purposeful neoliberal hollowing out of public infrastructure and capital sabotage of the old liberal social service network. A figure alienated from class consciousness by the mock benevolence of and the smug denigration of class solidarity by the wealthy, with the only road left to those so abandoned being the road to isolation, personality disintegration, and apolitical nihilism. Three, it reflectively mocks the liberal outrage warnings that the movie will propagate a disaffected white victim mentality, warnings which, ironically, have not only helped hype the movie, but guided the psychologically vulnerable viewer away from its class-conscious message and toward incel-like nihilism, thus fulfilling the outraged liberal's own prophecies. It's set in the 1970s, where gritty American cinema begins. Sam Fuller's killer elite and Peckinpah's straw dogs in the New York of the French Connection and Taxi Driver and Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Joker takes these reactionary retrograde genre pieces, flips them, and turns them to the and returns them to the social context that breeds class alienation. At the same time, as it dramatically and comically illustrates the forces that thwart class solidarity. Five. It is thus a politically perfect movie. I have almost nothing to add. I'm just plugging this Chapo Trap House episode, or stealing from it, or making the bulk of my piece a regurgitation of it, which is cheap. It's a cheap thing to do. You can call this moment of cheap 
Moment of truth, a cheapo trap house. One thing I will say, Mr. Meneker, I think the word you wanted was incarnation, not incantation, as in each of whom portrayed one of the many incarnations of the Joker rather than portrayed one of the many incantations of the Joker. Although as malapropisms go, it's a very pleasant one, almost magical. It's a malapropism to conjure with. The odd thing was, no one in the studio corrected him. But when Matt Christman, who did the bulk of the didactic heavy lifting during the episode, invented the word Michigosh, he was immediately told that the correct pronunciation is Michigas. I guess, as I've maintained in the past, if you live in New York long enough, you do become a little bit Jewish. Also, phenomenon is the singular, phenomena the plural. Additionally, the guys routinely talked over the women. The women held their own, easily, but they never talked over anyone. Guys, I know what it's like to be super excited about the brilliant ideas and witticisms teeming in your head. I once had those many years ago. They fell out with the last of my hair. And I talked over women, and I eventually tried not to do that. I have no idea if I've been at all successful. And let me assure you, the women I talked over were just as brilliant and witty as the ones you were interrupting. Also, would it kill you not to laugh while your friends are doing a bit? Let the audience be the sounding board. Or at least, don't be so close to the mic when you laugh. Laughter in the background is pretty tolerable. It allows us to say... Okay, that guy thinks the mention of multiplexes is funny, but he's not laughing so close to the mic that he assumes I do, too. But, of course, you are all funny, and your your analyses are edifying, which is totally why I glommed onto them rather than write my own review. Much as Matt credited the movie for cinematizing, if not synthesizing, a lot of ideas he hadn't yet put into words before seeing it, your Chapo Symposium put into words much of what I was feeling as Joker concluded, but was unable to verbalize. What I said to those who saw it with me as the credits rolled was, I found it beautiful. All the violence was cathartic, a lovely release. I feel uplifted by it, and I'm sure we are now meant to follow the truly redemptive philosophy the movie has communicated to us. And then the three of us left the landmark theater in Century City and blew away a few wealthy shoppers and diners at Italy. Some very insightful friends have expressed bewilderment that I might have loved Joker, the movie. I now refer them to this episode of Chapo Trap House. The conversation of these young loudmouths in aggregate, all of whom I identify with in some way or another, explains exactly how I feel and why I feel the way I do. You might disagree with everything they say, but please listen while you're doing the dishes or folding laundry or painting your face. Matt's aphoristic bromide near the end, very much appreciated by either Amber or Jen, or maybe both, is alone worth the effort to absorb the episode and describes any number of controversies about public art and other forms of public speech these days. They, the scolds on both the left and the right, hit the culture button because the power button is broken. Why is the power button broken? How can we fix it? First, you have to want to fix it. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. 
Hey, a couple things. Uh, at the beginning of this week's show, I opened with a monologue about how we are entering a new era, and I was talking about all the different people who have been producers and board operators on our show. Andrew Duncan, the uh, original lead guitarist for OK Go. Kate O'Donnell, who was at that time living with, sharing an apartment with uh, the band Arcade Fire. Uh, different people who've had weird connections to our shows. Uh, Kevin Harris has become a leading Iran, Iran analyst. Uh, Chris, uh, Dr. Biggs is uh, has been a doctor for a couple of major sports teams, and uh, Jeff is currently in the midst of suing the city of Portland, Maine. So we have all these crazy people who have been producers on our show, and one that I totally forgot about is... Chris Wade, who's a producer on Chapo Trap House, is uh, oh. one of our former producers, and I remember how he would not uh, really pay attention and was reading Harry Potter while looking at the mixing <laughs> board. So, so yeah, so I wonder where they got the idea for their show. It's really well, I have a damn leaf blower outside my window, and uh, I'm very sorry for that. Oh, and the other thing I just want to mention real quick is there's a New York Times review of the Joker that has spoilers in it as well, and you should check that out because the reviewer says that uh, the movie is all about white privilege, even though he doesn't <laughs> think Todd Phillips, the director of it, realized that. But you got to see the re- it's a very short review and it's worth it. So you got to check out how he believes that the Joker is all about white privilege. Well, you got to check out that. Chop up trap house. It really is good. It really is good. Uh, the, I, the next time I listen to Chopo Trap House will be the first time I listen to Chopo Trap House. My oh friend. well, this is a good one. This is probably in. If you have to listen to one, mm. this is the one. Then. Okay, but I don't I mean, have to. You don't have to. <laughs> you, what if you? What you know? You got stuff to do. You got to do dishes. I'm very busy. Actually, I do have to do dishes up here. Pete's been yelling at at me. Oh, for a oh few man, weeks. I'm. Uh, you got to do those. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next week. Uh huh. Stay beautiful. Oh, okay. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Okay, let's get to your answers to this week's question from hell, which is. What's the name of your venture capital firm? Leave your answers at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And you still have a chance at winning the new book, Censored 2020 Through the Looking Glass, the top censored stories in media analysis of 2018-2019. Alex, you have all the rest of the answers. So, Alex, what's the name of your cap, uh, venture capital firm? What do you got over there? Uh, Chandler H. says, I can't believe it's not a legal investment. <laughs> Brian C. says, we woke. Uh, that's pretty good. Aaron D says, Evergreen Tree Sunshine Money Stream Venture Fund. Uh, Francesco T says, Wealth Mongers Capital Group LLC. All right. Uh, Roman K says, Guillotine Incorporated. Uh, the guillotines are back in the replies. Jack B says, Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt, LLC. Uh, George P says, Engulf and devour. Our fingers are in everything. Uh, Joe S says, Ponzi's Unlimited. Andrew P says, Muffin Man Moneymakers LLC. <laughs> Who's I, that? I, I don't know why that's so funny to be honest. Uh, Andrew, Andrew P. Okay. Uh, Thomas K. says Ouroboros. And finally, Pammy H. says Poor People Suck Ventures. <laughs> Muffin Man. What was that again? Uh, hold on a second. I'm pulling it back up. I don't know why that's making me laugh so much. Uh, it's, uh, Muffin Man Moneymakers. <laughs> Money Makers. That so sounds like if you're looking at GPS on your uh, cell phone while you're driving, that sounds like one of the things that would pop up off to the side labeled, you know, because there's always these weird little things that pop up. Like I'll say like Joe analysis and you don't know what that is. Or it'll just say home and you don't know what the hell that is. That totally sounds like something you'd see on your GPS when you have it on satellite mode. Uh, So let's see. 
What's my answer to this week's question from Mel? What's the name of your venture capital firm? Somebody else mentioned Joe earlier. I like the name Fred. I know, it's kind of a lame answer, but what are you going to do? That makes this week's winner of the new book, Censored 2020 Through the Looking Glass, the top censored stories and media analysis of 2018-2019. Let's see. Nick E., I'm your daddy. I like that one. Greg M. Biden's son's Ukrainian mining and auto detailing was good. Brian C. We Woke is really genius. Uh, Roman K., just for bringing back guillotine to the answers in the question from hell, guillotine incorporated, and Andrew Muffin Man Moneymakers is really good too, but come on. Greg M. wins. Biden and Sons Ukrainian Mining and Auto Detailing. That is a fantastic answer to this week's question from hell again, which was, what's the name of your venture capital firm? Greg, please message us your mailing address via Facebook, and we will get your prize in the mail post-haste again. Censored 2020, Through the Looking Glass, the top censored stories in media analysis of 2018-2019. Thanks to everyone who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support this week. To check out all our This Is Hell stuff, including trucker caps, coffee mugs, T-shirts, tote bags, and more. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like commitment of Kilter. Also thanks to Pete, Adrienne's tithing, Pete's tithing as well. And we got one anonymous listener who donated as well, so we want to thank them as well. Our weekly Wednesday evening meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours, happens tonight at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours are a think and drink, with the emphasis on drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. And you're going to want to be at tonight's office hours because we will be celebrating our first week of doing weekday shows in our... New regular schedule, so if there was ever an office hours to attend, tonight's would be it. And we'll give you This Is Hell advertising stickers and show-related books just for dropping by. That's This Is Hell Office Hours tonight at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge or Little India neighborhood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Merritt's producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, who is on next Monday's one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, streaming live here on thisishell.com. We're talking with Miguel Martinez, author of the book Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. I'm really looking forward to reading that. You just got me the PDF today, so thank you, sir. And who's on Tuesday's two-hour show beginning at 2 p.m. Chicago time, also streaming at thisishell.com. I got uh, the first hour booked as uh, Mike Montero, who wrote the book uh, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. And a big thanks to the listeners who sent us that book in zine form that uh, I'm not pointing fingers, but someone got too high and lost it during office hours. And I'm not sure if it was you or me because I was too high to remember. I don't know. I will track it down. Uh, but uh, the cover actually is pretty amazing. I, I shared a uh, story about that on Facebook. Where, oh, yeah. Tell, yeah. Uh, the cover of the book, uh, Mike, the author, uh, was, was up for sale on Amazon. And then he just he figured out that he could just upload a PDF and change the cover that uh, Amazon was putting on it. So there is a big warning. Uh, on the cover of the regular book that just says attention Amazon workers and then it sort of lets them know that they are entitled to uh, form a union and gives them a link uh, to uh, 
how to information on how to organize a union uh, through the AFL-CIO. Yeah, so it's for uh, Amazon workers who are picking up that book out of out of uh, the warehouse so that they get that message. It's really cool, and I just ordered one on Amazon. Um, so, damn, I guess capitalism really wins in the end. Uh, that'll be the question from Hell Prize for next week. And finally, do we have any clue as to what's happening on next Wednesday's show, which, like Monday's shows, also is one hour and begins at ten in the morning Chicago time? Yeah, yeah. we just booked Tad Delay to talk about his book against. What does the white evangelical want? And that's because Calvin suggested him. So, Calvin, thank you for that suggestion. And we're going to be thanking you again next week during that interview. So I want to thank all of... Is there anything here? Yeah. So thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks for Jeff to do, for doing The Moment of Truth. Thanks to Ronaldo for giving us the last few weeks' hangover cures. And thanks to Ronaldo for his work on Rotten History. We want to also thank our guests this week. First of all, historian and mythbuster Henrik Olav Mattison, author of the Dark Mountain article, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. Thanks to writer, teacher, and organizer with the feminist group National Women's Liberation, Jenny Brown. She is author of the new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Thanks to sociologists, critical criminologists, ethnographer, feminism, and race scholar Andrea S. Boyles, author of You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. Thanks to award-winning writer Madeline Schwartz, author of the New York Review of Books article Inside the Deportation Courts. And this week's Hangover Cure is... Drink like an Italian, which is not what I thought it was. I thought drinking like an Italian was you drink while flirting with fascism, but apparently that's not what it is. Apparently it's being kind of a more conservative and thoughtful and drinker, you know? So drink like an Italian, apparently. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing Alex Jerry, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, and my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.